Welcome to Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter, your go-to source for cutting-edge security insights in the region. Get ready for rapid-fire analysis and commentary from the Asia-Pacific with your host, Kim Bergman. Hello and welcome back. At the end of the last episode, I said that we would be having a look at the Hunter-class frigate program, but I'm going to defer that for a bit longer because more information has come to light on nuclear-powered submarines and also on the strange business of the purchase of the CERTAS towed array system. Regarding nuclear-powered submarines, in Washington last week, no less a figure than the US Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Mike Gilday, said, and this is a quote, that it's too early to tell precisely where those submarines will come from. He is referring to the two second-hand Virginia-class subs that under AUKUS, it seems, we have entered into an agreement to purchase. And what he is saying, and it was picked up by the ABC, I'm not sure if anyone else did, is just a statement of reality that is not reflected in anything that our government is telling us or our Department of Defence is saying. Namely that, and I've touched on this before, for Australia to be getting submarines, it requires the United States industrial base to be able to pick up the speed of their activities, and there are no guarantees that's going to happen. This leads to two very important interconnected topics that have received almost no coverage at all in Australia, and that is the consequence of buying second-hand submarines when it comes to their disposal, and linked with that, what I regard as the extraordinary decision that Australia has taken without any public debate or discussion at all, that the second-hand Virginia-class submarines will be disposed of in Australia. Now, by this weird decision to go down the route of the first two being second-hand, it has brought forward the problem of decommissioning by about 15 to 20 years. What we are going to acquire if it even goes ahead, and as I say, I continue to have my reservations, the submarines that we're looking at will probably have been manufactured between 2015 and 2020, though our Navy hasn't ruled out even earlier Batch 3 submarines. This means we are looking at 2048 as the retirement date of the first Virginia class, and a couple of years after that for the second one. Now, the disposal of nuclear-powered submarines is a dangerous, expensive, and complex business. In the United States, the spent fuel is removed from the pressure vessel of the submarine when it's tied up at the dock. The pressure vessel has to be cut open. It's then transported to a facility in Idaho managed by the Department of Energy. The fuel, the uranium-235, is put in water tanks because it is so hot, it needs to be cooled down for an extended period of time, a couple of years, and then it's put into dry storage to allow it to cool further. And after that, it's prepared for ultimate burial in a deep geological repository, which, by the way, hasn't happened yet, even in the United States. Now, the rest of the reactor, without the fuel, is transported for burial in Washington state. It's a big, complex, dangerous exercise, and you're talking about 200 kilograms 
of U235 that's involved in that. So because under these AUKUS commitments, Australia has brought into the, the rear end of this process, it means that we face massive costs, health risks and security concerns because this stuff also has to be protected indefinitely because it's inherently so dangerous. In the US, of course, where they've got dozens of commercial and military reactors and nuclear-powered submarines, they've got a huge facility in Idaho that takes care of all of this sort of stuff. In Australia, we have nothing. We've got no nuclear industry whatsoever. So from scratch, we're going to have to create a miniature version of the facility that exists in Idaho because of the costs of construction and environmental approvals and all of that sort of stuff. Work on that is going to have to start pretty soon. In terms of, of infrastructure projects, uh, the year 2048, I tell you, is really not that far away. Now, apart from the mere fact or the question of do we want to be doing this sort of stuff in Australia, there's the further question of just how much is it going to cost? I might add, by the way, the United Kingdom, which has had a civil nuclear power industry for the last 67 years, even they haven't figured out the disposal process for their nuclear-powered submarines, and they've got about 20 of them, just tied up at wharves, gradually rusting away. The only country that has been able to manage it to date is the United States with all of their enormous resources. Who is it that has agreed to this strategy of buying the second-hand submarines and then attached to it their disposal in Australia? I mean, to lighten the mood, I'm reminded of, uh, you know, it's almost like a skit involving vice rear cabin boy Sir Bobo Gargle, who the present government would seem to think is a real live figure. For overseas listeners, Sir Bobo Gargle is a comedic figure on a television satirical show, sending up the senior ranks of the Navy. But again, I just come back to the basic twin questions. Who agreed to this idea of buying secondhand submarines? And furthermore, who agreed to them being disposed of in Australia rather than in the United States? I can just imagine the scene where Sir Bobo turns up and is speaking with a minister explaining this decision to buy secondhand submarines by saying, well, minister, Australian sailors have brains that are 15 years behind those of the US. And the reaction would be, of course, Perhaps we should buy even older submarines. And Sir Bobo says, yes, well, of course, we'll increase the size of the nuclear task force to 400 people and immediately fly to London and Washington for further discussions. That's, I mean, there doesn't seem to have been any analysis, or if there has been analysis, it would be really interesting to know how people can possibly think the purchase of second-hand submarines is a good idea. You only have to look at previous acquisition disasters. The amphibious support ships Manura and Canimbla, purchased from the US, turned out to be rust buckets. Chules, purchased from the UK, its entire electrical system blew up six months after we'd forked out for it. The most highly publicised one is the Sea Sprite helicopter disaster, which cost back in 2008 $2.4 billion. When you group these together and escalate them to 2023 dollars, we're probably talking 
about $5 billion worth of waste purely caused by the fact that we bought secondhand platforms. It should be emblazoned across all of the Department of Defense in neon meter high letters, don't buy secondhand equipment, especially from the US. And by the way, those decisions that I referred to, Manura, Canimbla, Chules, Sea Sprite helicopters, no one has ever been held to account for any of these decisions, not a single one. To people looking at the secondhand Virginia market, I'll give you a tip. Don't buy the USS Minnesota, which was the 10th Virginia-class submarine. It was launched in 2013, but then languished for more than two years because a cracked pipe was discovered in the reactor compartment. And that, that reminds me, again, with a lot of, I think it's close to misinformation, what little we get that's been put into the public domain. When you look at the design of a nuclear-powered submarine, the pressure vessel, the stuff where the U-235 does its thing, that's welded shut. No one goes in that. But the reactor compartment contains pipes and pumps and all of that sort of stuff, and that certainly needs to be inspected periodically just for basic safety reasons. So to restate, two questions. Why, for goodness sake, second-hand Virginia-class submarines, and why can't they go back to the United States for disposal? Who on earth agreed to that monstrous task being done in Australia? Surely, as part of the AUKUS deal, we should have been able to persuade the US with their infrastructure and their experience to, to do it. They honestly must be laughing. They must be thinking, what a bunch of mugs the Australians are. We're about to tip $3 billion into their industrial base to subsidise the production of future new submarines. In exchange, we're taking two second-hand submarines. And on top of that, we're shouldering all of the financial burden and all of the risk for their disposal. I think it's just crazy stuff. I come back to an earlier theme that if we want nuclear-powered submarines. As I said, I'm agnostic on the issue. If somebody can persuade me that they're really worth all of the money and all of the time, surely we should once again go back to the French for the Suffren design, the Barracuda-class SSN. The attack class was a derivative of these. You know, we switched out the nuclear system for conventional. It could be done the other way around. A lot of the work is not necessarily written off. These things are powered by low enriched uranium and people in the defence system, they have said and they've obviously convinced ministers who appear to have just suspended their critical faculties entirely. LEU needs to be refuelled every 10 years, but HEU from the Virginia class submarines, it'll last for the life of the submarine 30 years or 33 years. But so what? I mean, with LEU, spare cores could be stored in Australia and swapped out every 10 years. An even easier solution would be for the submarines every, once every decade to go back to France to have it done for us. But for some people, for some reason, people are critical of this, saying, oh, well, it's a strategic risk. We don't mind a strategic risk when the United States is involved. But we think it's completely unacceptable when France is involved. And I just don't see that at all. Anyway, 
I come back to the basic point that as far as I'm aware, the option of refueling an LEU-powered submarine in Australia has never been seriously examined. And before it's too late, we certainly need to look at that again. Now, mind you, it's unclear whether the French, since we've treated them like absolute dirt, would be in the slightest bit interested in helping us out, but at least it's worth exploring. I'll also just say a couple of further words about nuclear power submarines, their performance. They're fast, yes, endurance, yes. I don't know why everyone, again, including this government, has swallowed the line, hook, line and sinker that they are stealthy because um, they can be, but it depends because sooner or later, the heat from the nuclear reactor has to be converted into mechanical and electrical energy. And this is done from spinning very large turbine blades. No spinning, no power. They have a small emergency backup battery pack, but this is not designed to support the operations of the, of the submarine. And the faster you go, the more noise that you make. So it's like all submarine operations, there are trade-offs to be made. Nuclear-powered submarines do not simultaneously fix all problems. And let's just have a look at, uh, at a few accidents. And this isn't e even involving the nuclear part of the equation. This just happens when you travel fast undersea. In 2021, the Seawolf submarine US Connecticut hit a seamount and did huge damage to the front of the submarine. It won't return to service until 2025 at the earliest. In 2005, there was an, an even worse underwater collision involving USS San Francisco with a rock. In retrospect, everyone agrees that the submarine should just have been written off. The damage was so severe, it took years and a huge amount of money for it to be fixed. Even the British are not immune. In uh, 2008, in the Red Sea, HMS Superb hit a rock and again, damaged its front end so badly that it had to return to the UK on the surface the entire way. What does that do for the stealth qualities of the submarine when it has to limp back all the way on the surface? The point is that, yes, you can travel very fast underwater, but it's not without risk because your sonar performance is degraded. Uh, you become very dependent on your navigational systems or all of the rest. So I'm just trying to make the point. Nuclear-powered submarines are certainly good for certain things, but they are not a universal panacea for all of Australia's naval problems. It's really as easy as that. Uh, okay, that's it on nuke submarines. Let's now turn to CERTAS because a little bit of information has come to light on this one. Just a quick reminder, CERTAS is this very strange business of a towed array system being purchased from the United States through the FMS system. I asked Defence for an explanation of why Australian industry had seemingly been ignored. And to my surprise, normally questions are ignored. A reply came through and I quote, a request for information extended to industry demonstrated that no Australian-sourced option could achieve the required cost, schedule, and risk profile for this procurement. Now, I'll say pretty basically that either defence has misled the government or the government genuinely could not care less about Australian industry 
and have endorsed this deal as some sort of weird, mysterious adjunct to AUKUS. And I bring AUKUS into the picture because I'm looking at the internal briefing notes that the Department of Defense provided to their officials appearing before Senate estimates in February. And there's a sentence that really jumps out. And that is, again, I'm quoting, Defense is investing in an integrated undersea surveillance system to develop Australia's wide area surveillance capability via our AUKUS collaboration. Ooh, wouldn't you like to know more about that? I wonder if this $309 million that we're forking out for Certus comes on top of the previously mentioned $3 billion that is going straight to the bottom line of US companies. What the department is presumably referring to, this request for information, is for a project called C-5012. Now, 5012 is you know, undersea surveillance, blah, blah, blah. However, the information provided via an RFI process is not tender quality. It's just broad stuff about company capabilities. It would be like collecting brochures from building companies, LJ Hooker, whatever, based on those brochures, concluding that none of them could provide the necessary level of service. And so instead, Australia has decided to pay four times as much, whatever it is, for a US company to do the job. The information under that RFI process is very generic. It's just about company capabilities, previous projects, that sort of thing. And perhaps most significantly, it contains no information whatsoever about pricing. So on CERTAS, there's a lot more to come on all of this. Australian industry is deeply unhappy. They're very limited in what they can say about this. They're scared of getting Navy offside. They're scared of getting the government offside. But people are being misled on this and they're being misled in a serious way. The RFI has not provided information of sufficient quality to be making a decision that CERTAS can only be acquired from the United States. I'm sure that Defence has other sources of information as well. I can only repeat the basic point. This is pretty outrageous. Australia has a highly capable sonar industry. We could and should be doing the work here. If this is being done as yet another SOP to keep the Americans happy, I mean, how delighted they must be. They must be laughing, looking at the amounts of money that Australia is now throwing at US industry in return for actually pretty negligible results. That's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening, and we might be able to do Hunt Class next week or at least make a start. Bye for now. That's today's Asia-Pacific Defence Reporter. For more in-depth articles, expert opinions and exclusive interviews, visit asiapacificdefensereporter.com. Stay informed, stay ahead. This is your source for all things defence. Until next time.